It's the 18th of April in the year of our salvation, 2010. This is the third Sunday of Easter in the new Reformed calendar, and the second after Easter in the traditional Roman calendar. And you're back with Father John Zolsdorf and another podcast. We welcome as our guests today a couple of popes. Benedict XVI will be with us, and also Pius Twelfth, as well as the early Christian apologist and martyr, Justin Martyr, who died in 165 A.D., We know very little of the life of St. Justin Martyr. He was born in what is now modern-day Nablus in Palestine, and he was beheaded during the reign of Marcus Aurelius. Justin's relics might be just north of Rome in a little church in the town of Sacrofano. And the new calendar has Justin on the 1st of June, uh, which is the same as when the Byzantine Church celebrates him. But the older traditional calendar marks his feast on the 14th of April. Now, Justin came to my mind today because in the modern Liturgy of the Hours for today, for the third Sunday of Easter, in the second reading, in the, hour, in the Office of Readings, there is a selection from the first Apology in Defense of Christians by none other than St. Justin Martyr. So I thought I'd share a little bit of that with you. And uh, we will hear what Pope Benedict has to say about St. Justin uh, from a general audience in 2007. You might recall that Pope Benedict, during his general audiences uh, for quite a long time, has been talking about various great figures of the church. He started with apostles and then he started talking about fathers of the church. Well, when he was talking about the very earliest days, some of the very first figures, he talked about Justin Martyr. So we are going to hear what Pope Benedict had to say about St. Justin during one of his general audiences. Dear brothers and sisters, with these catechesis we are reflecting on the great figures of the early church. Today we will talk about St. Justin, philosopher and martyr, the most important among the apologist fathers of the second century. The term apologist refers to those ancient Christian writers who wanted to defend the new religion from the weighty accusations of the pagans and the Jews, and to spread Christian doctrine in terms understandable for the times. Thus, the apologists have a twofold objective, the properly apologetic one, that is, to defend newborn Christianity, in fact, the Greek word apologia means defend, uh, 
and the missionary objective, which seeks to explain the faith using language and ideas which were understandable to their contemporaries. Justin was born around the year 100, near the ancient city of Sikkim in Samaria, in the Holy Land. For a long time he searched for truth, passing through the various schools of traditional Greek philosophy. Finally, as he himself tells in the first chapters of his dialogue with Trypho, a mysterious person, an old man he met on the beach, initially unsettles Justin by showing him that it is impossible for the human person to satisfy the desire for the divine with human strengths alone. Then this man pointed to the ancient prophets as the ones who could show Justin the path to God and true philosophy. Before leaving, the old man exhorts him to pray so that the doors of light would be opened to him. The story symbolizes a crucial moment in Justin's life. At the end of a long philosophical journey in search of truth, he comes to find Christianity. He then founded a school in Rome, where, for free, he initiated his students into the new religion, which he considered the true philosophy. In this religion, in fact, he had found the truth, and therefore the way to live uprightly. Because of this, he was denounced and decapitated around the year 165, under the reign of Marcus Aurelius, the emperor-philosopher to whom Justin had dedicated an apology. His two apologies and the dialogue with Trypho are the only works of his still in existence. In them, Justin aims above all to show the divine projects of creation and of salvation brought about by Christ, the Logos, that is, the eternal word, eternal reason, creative reason. Every person, as a rational creature, participates in the Logos, carrying within himself a seed, and can perceive glimmers of truth. In this way, the same Logos, who had revealed himself as a prophetic image to the Jews of the Old Covenant, had also partially revealed himself as with seeds of truth in Greek philosophy. Thus, Justin concludes, given that Christianity is a historical and personal manifestation of the Logos in its entirety, quote, all that is beautiful which has been expressed by anyone belongs to us Christians, close quote, Second Apologia 13.4. In this way, Justin, even while contesting Greek philosophy for its contradictions, decidedly directs any philosophical truth towards the Logos, justifying from a rational viewpoint the unusual pretension of truth and the universality of the Christian religion. If the Old Testament tends toward Christ in the same way that a figure tends toward the reality which it represents, Greek philosophy also tends toward Christ and the gospel, just as a part tends toward union with the whole. And he says that these two realities, the Old Testament and Greek philosophy, are like two roads leading to Christ, to the Logos. This is why Greek philosophy cannot be opposed to evangelical truth, and Christians may competently draw from it as if it was their own possession. This is why my venerable predecessor, Pope John Paul II, defined Justin as a, quote, pioneer of a positive engagement with philosophical thinking, albeit with cautious discernment, 
Although he continued to hold Greek philosophy in high esteem after his conversion, Justin claimed with power and clarity that he had found in Christianity quote, the only sure and profitable philosophy. Close both quotes. Dialogue with Trifo 8.1 and also Fides et Ratio number 38. On the whole, the person and the work of Justin mark the ancient church's decisive option for philosophy because of reason instead of pagan religions. In fact, the first Christians refused any compromise with the pagan religion. They considered it idolatry, even at the cost of being accused as impious and atheists. In particular, and especially in his first apology, Justin harshly criticized the pagan religion and its myths, which he considered diabolical disorientations on the path to truth. Instead, philosophy represented the privileged meeting place for paganism, Judaism, and Christianity precisely at the level of critiquing the pagan religion and its false myths. Another apologist, Justin's contemporary Bishop Melito of Sardis, defined the new religion as our philosophy. Ecclesiastical History 426.7 In fact, the pagan religion did not walk along the path of the Logos, but insisted on following its myths, even if recognized by Greek philosophy as inconsistent with the truth. Therefore, the fall of the pagan religion was inevitable. It was the logical consequence of detaching religion from the truth of things, reducing it to a fake collection of ceremonies, traditions, and customs. Justin, and with him other apologists, took the position of the Christian faith as the god of the philosophers instead of the false gods of pagan religion. It was a choice for the truth of being versus the myth of traditions. Some decades after Justin, Tertullian defined the same option of the Christians with a perennially valid phrase, quote, Dominus noster Christus veritatem se, non consuetudinem, Christ said he was the truth, not the tradition. De Virginibus Velandis, 1, 1. Note that the term consuetudo, used here by Tertullian with reference to the pagan religion, may be translated in modern languages with expressions like, quote, cultural fashions, or, quote, fads. In, in an era such as ours, marked by relativism in the debate on values and on religion, as well as in interreligious dialogue, this is a lesson that should not be forgotten. With this objective, and here I'll conclude, I again present to you the words of the mysterious old man that Justin found by the sea. Quote, you, above all, pray that the doors of light will be opened for you, for no one can see nor understand if God and his Christ do not give him understanding. Close quote. Dialogue 7.3 That was from Pope Benedict's general audience back in 2007, where he spoke about Justin Martyr. And now let's turn to the Liturgy of the Hours for today. And I'm, of course, speaking of the newer form of the office that 
priests and religious have to say, deacons as well, and bishops too, cardinals and popes. They all have to recite the office, the office, the officium. It's their duty to recite this as the official prayer of the church. And uh, today we're going to hear the second reading from the Office of Readings. This is from the first apology of St. Justin, and I'm using the English translation in the American uh, Liturgy of the Hours. Now, you should tune your ears for a few things. First of all, Justin is explaining what Christians do on Sunday, why they do it. What they're doing is what we call Holy Mass. And the word thanksgiving that he uses in here uh, refers, of course, to Eucharistia in Greek, uh, thanksgiving. And note how he stresses uh, who they have to be in order to participate, in order to communicate with them or partake of the Eucharist with them. They all have to believe the same things in common, and they have to have been baptized. There will also be a reference to the wealthy, and the implication is that what they're doing and who they are cuts across all classes and different groups. Now, when Justin speaks of the congregation, the gathering, uh, saying amen, um, he uses a Greek word, uh, anapempe. It's from anapempo, which suggests a real loud voice, ascending up. Anapempo is to send up, to send out of yourself. And so you can think of like raising your voice. So the implication here is that it's really quite a noise, quite a, quite a loud amen, a loud acclamation. You know, think about that sometimes when you're maybe at mass and hearing the sort of tepid, you know, weak, you know, uncommittal responses that some people make at mass. I digress. You will also note that uh, at the time of Justin Martyr, there was still spontaneous prayer made up by the priest. And he even uses a little phrase in here. He, you know, gives thanks as best he can. And uh, imagine how many horrific things, you know, might be said today if that were still the rule. Thank heaven it is not. But I digress again. Now let's hear some Justin. Let's hear Justin from his first apology, his first defense of Christians. And this is from chapters 66 to 67. Kai he trofe aute, kai leitai par humin eucharistia, he soudeni aldo metaskein exon esti he to pistevonti adete. No one may share the Eucharist with us unless he believes that what we teach is true, unless he is washed in the regenerating waters of baptism for the remission of his sins, and unless he lives in accordance with the principles given us by Christ. We do not consume the Eucharistic bread and wine as if it were ordinary food and drink, for we have been taught that as Jesus Christ our Savior became a man of flesh and blood by the power of the word of God, so also the food that our flesh and blood assimilates for its nourishment 
becomes the flesh and blood of the incarnate Jesus by the power of his own words contained in the prayer of thanksgiving. The apostles, in their recollections, which are called Gospels, handed down to us what Jesus commanded them to do. They tell us that he took bread, gave thanks, and said, Do this in memory of me, this is my body. In the same way he took the cup, he gave thanks, and said, This is my blood. The Lord gave this command to them alone. Ever since then, we have constantly reminded one another of these things. The rich among us help the poor, and we are always united. For all that we receive, we praise the Creator of the universe through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. On Sunday, we have a common assembly of all our members, whether they live in the city or in the outlying districts. The recollections of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as there is time. When the reader has finished, the president of the assembly speaks to us. He urges everyone to imitate the examples of virtue we have heard in the readings. Then we all stand up together and pray. On the conclusion of our prayer, bread and wine and water are brought forward. The president offers prayers and gives thanks to the best of his ability, and the people give their assent by saying, Amen. The Eucharist is distributed. Everyone present communicates, and the deacons take it to those who are absent. The wealthy, if they wish, may make a contribution, and they themselves decide the amount. The collection is placed in the custody of the president, who uses it to help the orphans and widows and all who for any reason are in distress, whether because they are sick, in prison, or away from home. In a word, he takes care of all who are in need. We hold our common assembly on Sunday because it is the first day of the week, the day on which God put darkness and chaos to flight and created the world, and because on that same day our Savior Jesus Christ rose from the dead, for he was crucified on Friday, and on Sunday he appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught them the things that we have passed on for your consideration. That was St. Justin Martyr and his description of what we call Holy Mass today. Now, it occurs to me to add a couple more comments about this. As I was reading, a couple things popped into my head. Uh, first of all, there are some people who think that just because something was done in the early church, or not done, uh, it should be done or not done now. Well, their idea is that if it belongs to a pristine time, then it must be better or purer. And this is especially true in the sphere of liturgy. People of a certain age, I think, you know, like this idea. If the ancient church did it, then everything that followed is just some sort of encrustation on the purer form. And those encrustations have to be scraped off so that we can have the real thing. Well, there's a false reasoning in this, of course, and it's a false reasoning that was 
uh, pretty much exploded uh, by Pius XII in his 1947 encyclical Mediator Dei. Uh, let's hear what Pius said in Mediator Dei, and we'll hear sections 60 to 65. The use of the Latin language, customarily in a considerable portion of the Church, is a manifest and beautiful sign of unity, as well as an effective antidote for any corruption of doctrinal truth. In spite of this, the use of the mother tongue in connection with several of the rites may be of much advantage to the people. But the apostolic see alone is empowered to grant this permission. It is forbidden, therefore, to take any action whatever of this nature without having requested and obtained such consent, since the sacred liturgy, as we have said, is entirely subject to the discretion and approval of the Holy See. The same reasoning holds in the case of some persons who are bent on the restoration of all the ancient rites and ceremonies indiscriminately. The liturgy of the early ages is most certainly worthy of all veneration, but ancient usage must not be esteemed more suitable and proper either in its own right or in its significance for later times and new situations, on the simple ground that it carries the savor and aroma of antiquity. The more recent liturgical rites likewise deserve reverence and respect. They, too, owe their inspiration to the Holy Spirit, who assists the Church in every age, even to the consummation of the world. They are equally the resources used by the majestic spouse of Jesus Christ to promote and procure the sanctity of man. Assuredly, it is a wise and most laudable thing to return in spirit and affection to the sources of the sacred liturgy, for research in this field of study, by tracing it back to its origins, contributes valuable assistance towards a more thorough and careful investigation of the significance of feast days and of the meaning of the texts and sacred ceremonies employed on their occasion. But it is neither wise nor laudable to reduce everything to antiquity by every possible device. Thus, to cite some instances, one would be straying from the straight path were he to wish the altar restored to its primitive table form were he to want black excluded as a color for the liturgical vestments, were he to forbid the use of sacred images and statues in churches, were he to order the crucifix so designed that the divine Redeemer's body shows no trace of his cruel sufferings, and lastly, were he to disdain and reject polyphonic music or singing in parts, even where it conforms to regulations issued by the Holy See. Clearly no sincere Catholic can refuse to accept the formulation of Christian doctrine, more recently elaborated and proclaimed as dogmas by the Church, under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, with abundant fruit for souls, because it pleases him to hark back to the old formulas. No more can any Catholic, in his right senses, repudiate existing legislation of the Church to revert to prescriptions based on the earliest sources of canon law. Just as obviously unwise and mistaken is the zeal of one who in matters liturgical would go back to the rites and usage of antiquity, 
discarding the new patterns introduced by disposition of divine providence to meet the changes of circumstances and situation. This way of acting bids fair to revive the exaggerated and senseless antiquarianism to which the illegal council of Pistoia gave rise. It likewise attempts to reinstate a series of errors which were responsible for the calling of that meeting as well as for those resulting from it, with grievous harm to souls, and which the Church, the ever-watchful guardian of the deposit of faith committed to her charge by her divine founder, had every right and reason to condemn. For perverse designs and ventures of this sort tend to paralyze and weaken that process of sanctification by which the sacred liturgy directs the sons of adoption to their heavenly Father of their soul's salvation. In every measure taken, then, let proper contact with the ecclesiastical hierarchy be maintained. Let no one arrogate to himself the right to make regulations and impose them on others at will. Only the Supreme Pontiff, as the successor of St. Peter, charged by the Divine Redeemer with the feeding of his entire flock, and with him, in obedience to the apostolic see, the bishops, whom the Holy Ghost has placed to rule the Church of God, have the right and the duty to govern the Christian people. Consequently, venerable brethren, whenever you assert your authority, even on occasion with wholesome severity, you are not merely acquitting yourselves of your duty, you are defending the very will of the founder of the Church. So, thus Pius Twelfth. And this helps us to understand how to read Justin's descriptions of things. You see, just because they did things one way back then, that doesn't justify our doing or trying to do those things now. If by imitating them we are uh, straying from the right path, the path of saying the black and doing the red as it's in the book, as it's given to us by proper authority, by the church's proper authority. You know, the people, we don't have the right to go ahead and just change things in liturgy because we think we have a better idea about uh, how it should be done than what the church has given us. We have to stick with proper authority. Now, sometimes proper authority will seem to be, you know, screwing things up a little bit. And we always have then, you know, recourse uh, to the Holy See. Um, one of the things that you should you know, make yourself aware of is a document called Redemptionis Sacramentum that was put out by the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments some years ago. And at the end of that document, well, here, let's see if I can find that right here. I can quote it to you. Okay, here it comes. And, uh, good, okay, now we scroll down toward the bottom of the document itself into the section, section 6, Complaints Regarding Abuses in Liturgical Matters, uh, paragraphs 183 and following. Let's hear what the congregation had to say. In an altogether particular manner, let everyone do all that is in their power to ensure that the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist will be protected from any and every irreverence or distortion, and that all abuses be thoroughly corrected. 
This is a most serious duty incumbent upon each and every one, and all are bound to carry it out without any favoritism. I guess that means if you, you know, even though you really think the priest is a nice guy or deserves a break, you still should do something about it anyway. Okay, let's read on. Paragraph 184. Any Catholic, whether priest or deacon or lay member of Christ's faithful, has the right to lodge a complaint regarding a liturgical abuse to the diocesan bishop or the competent ordinary equivalent to him in law, or to the apostolic see on account of the primacy of the Roman pontiff. It is fitting, however, insofar as possible, that the report or complaint be submitted first to the diocesan bishop. This is naturally to be done in truth and charity. Okay, in other words, what we want to do is we want to work our way up. If it can be, we want to try to resolve these things at the lowest possible level of authority. So you, you know, work with the priest first in the parish or wherever it is that you happen to be. If you don't get anything there, well, then you know, you're keeping copies of everything that you did. You remember that you have to have proofs of what you say. It's not just good enough to say, well, so-and-so did this. You have to be able to show that they did it, you know, with you know, some sort of demonstrating that's printed or, you know, a video or film or, you know, whatever it is. Um, you have to be able to, you know, give evidence for anybody in authority to, to act in a, in a disciplinary way, right? But the, so you, you wind up kicking this upstairs. But the one really interesting thing about this is that the paragraph says that everyone has the right to lodge a complaint immediately with the Holy See, you can, if you want to, jump over all of the steps in between because the Holy See has the highest authority and you always have recourse to that authority. But it probably will you know, be uh, better to you know, try to work your way up and, and resolve things at the lowest level that you possibly can. Uh, let's read. Let's just read the last two concluding paragraphs, as long as we're here. 185. Against the seeds of discord, which daily experience shows to be so deeply ingrained in human nature as a result of sin, there stands the creative power of the unity of the church's body. For it is precisely by building up the church that the Eucharist establishes fellowship among men. It is therefore the hope of this congregation for divine worship and the discipline of the sacraments that also, by the diligent application of those things that are recalled in this instruction, human weaknesses may come to pose less of an obstacle to the action of the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist, and that with all distortions set aside and every reprobated practice removed, through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, woman of the Eucharist, the saving presence of Christ in the sacrament of his body and blood may shine brightly upon all people. Let all Christ's faithful participate in the most holy Eucharist as fully, consciously, and actively as they can, honoring it lovingly by their devotion and the manner of their life. Let bishops, priests, and deacons, in the exercise of the sacred ministry, examine their consciences as regards the authenticity and fidelity of the actions they have performed in the name of Christ and the Church in the celebration of the sacred liturgy. Let each one of the sacred ministers ask himself, even with severity, whether he has respected the rights of the lay members of Christ's faithful, who confidently entrust themselves and their children to him, relying on him to fulfill for the faithful 
those sacred functions that the Church intends to carry out in celebrating the sacred liturgy at Christ's command. For each one should always remember that he is the servant of the sacred liturgy. Well, strong words from the congregation, and I couldn't help but think in that paragraph about how in our office as servants, um, how at times we have uh, abused the goodwill of lay people in so many different ways. But, you know, of course, very obviously, there are those, you know, terrible ways uh, which are, you know, very much a matter of controversy today. But also, of also the, the, the people who have to go to Mass on Sunday and, and uh, we're obliged to go and yet are sometimes forced to endure um, faithlessness and uh, at times uh, stupidity in what uh, is being you know, pressed upon them and is almost like a captive audience. You know, when the, the, the sacred ministers put themselves in the way and put their own wishes and things like that in the way, uh, they do harm, great harm to the whole church. And uh, they are not acting as you know, servants of the sacred liturgy, but rather its masters, and therefore the masters of, of the people who are going to participate in their own manner of participation through their baptism. As Justin Martyr said, when you, you know, distort the liturgy, you distort the way we pray, you start distorting what we believe, too. And perhaps a lot of the things that we see in church today, a lot of, you know, there are always going to be human faults. And there are always going to be difficulties. But when we have so undermined our worship of God, we lose track of who we are as Catholics. And if we don't know who we are, we don't know how to interact with the whole world around us as Catholics. And this is one of the reasons why our Holy Father, Pope Benedict, is trying to revitalize our worship. You know, there are ways in, in which we can, you know, argue with people like this ancient apologist, Justin, came up with arguments to defend the Christian faith and explain what we're doing. But it's interesting that he, he talks about worship in this, worship in this particular section. Because I think that in many cases, we are not going to argue people around to our side. And a lot of the healing in the church isn't going to come from arguments. But it it could come from people having an experience of worship which is truly concerned with that which is outside of themselves, that which is transcendent. To have an encounter with mystery in worship will be far more compelling and perhaps even more healing than a lot of other things that we can do. Of course, we always have to couple what we do as Catholics with the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. But at the foundation of who we are must come our worship of God. And we have to do this according to rites of Holy Church, faithfully and with great reverence and great respect for our proper roles whether we are sacred ministers and clergy or lay people, whatever role we have, we have to respect our roles and respect what it is that Holy Church has given us so that if we can get ourselves out of the way 
and we can have that encounter with mystery, then God can work in us, in the Christian people, what it is that he wills for us. And we can be nourished in the proper way by the worship in which we participate. Okay, yes, I understand. I'm kind of going on and on here. Um, Back to Justin about one point, uh, another point, which is related in a sense. Another point uh, that we can pick up from that reading is that in those days, uh, people could be killed for what they did, for being Christian. Uh, One of the reasons is that they weren't going to participate anymore in the public pagan cults. And by that, they could be accused of treason, against the revolt against the state. And this was because um, of the view that the peace with the gods had to be maintained with proper rights, like maintaining uh, their end of a contract uh, to maintain peace and therefore the good and prosperity of the state. And refusing to do this, therefore, was seen against this contract and against that peace with the gods, it was therefore perceived as a threat to the state itself. And so, in short, you could be killed for belonging to this group and participating with that group on Sundays and those strange things that they did. But they all went anyway. And you might give that some thought the next time uh, you have maybe some trouble motivating yourself to go to Holy Mass. With that, I'm going to wrap up this somewhat rambling podcast. This is podcast number 100, and I wasn't feeling terribly creative today, so I just decided to lean on the works of others, as I do you know, so very often in these podcasts. But as I kind of got going and started to ramble a little bit, um, I am now able to bring podcast 100 to a close. I'm kind of thinking uh, what I might want to do with these projects in the future, uh, if I want to you know, kind of change the format or whatever, and uh, your feedback could be uh, helpful to me. And I have a couple of phone numbers which you could call uh, and leave feedback. First of all, I have a Skype address. If you are a user of Skype, you can find my Skype voicemail at WDTPRS. Big surprise there. That's Whiskey, Delta, Tango, Papa, Romeo, Sierra. And uh, there's a phone number that you can dial in uh, England, in the London area. It's 020-3239-5957. And in the United States, it's 651-315-8191. And uh, these are temporary numbers. I, can, uh, I have to pay a fee to keep them going. And, uh, but you can use them now. 
And if you call those numbers, don't expect me to answer. You'll get my voicemail. But do leave the voicemail for me, and I will appreciate the feedback. And also, I have, uh, in the past, appreciated uh, the donations that you've given when I've made these projects. Do please keep them coming. They are very appreciated. And I will appreciate also uh, your kindness in saying a prayer for me, as I always do for you. Let me tell you.